listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. But if you could all turn with me to the book of Judges, chapter 14. We're going to continue our Broken People Faithful God series this morning. And today we're going to look at the life of Samson. This is a life that is filled with a lot of sex, violence, and grace. A lot of grace. Samson's life is a riddle. He's the chosen one. He's strong. He, he has all the ability in the world. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit of the Lord. Yet, he's a narcissistic loner who is his own worst enemy. In this passage, we're going to not only see the life of Samson, but we're going to also answer some big questions that, that we have from time to time. Why does God use bad people, broken people? Ever wondered that? And how is it possible to have the blessing of God and the Spirit of the Lord on your life and yet have no fruit of the Spirit at all? How does that work? In many ways, the story of Samson is a reflection on the entire state of Israel. As we've been going through this series in Judges, he is the perfect example of Israel in one individual person. And what we're going to see in Samson is the brokenness of man. Many of us have a hard time seeing ourselves in a man like this because we don't have the Hulk-like strength or the roid rage or the long locks of hair. But what you're going to see here is a man who in his heart has the common struggles that are so common to every single one of us this morning. We are going to see ourselves in this story of the broken man, Samson. But that's not all we're going to see because we're also going to see our faithful God this morning. We're going to see that your brokenness is redeemable through God's faithfulness. Your brokenness is redeemable through God's faithfulness. So would you follow along with me today as we read this story? We have three more chapters in Samson's life and this sermon is going to be a little different in the sense that it's a narrative. I'm not going to have my regular points like I have, but I, three, I still have three headings. Um, and we're just going to work through this together, and ha- we have a lot to learn. So, chapter 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And I'll pause right there and just let you know that Timnah is in the middle of Israel, okay? This is actually not very far from Jerusalem. So what the author is letting us know is he's giving us a a glimmer of the fact that the Philistines and the Israelites, but let's pick it up in verse two. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. So again, we have... We have Samson talking to his parents. He wants what he desires. He sees something that he craves, and he says, get that for me. This is 
the epitome of gratifying your own lust, your own, your own desires of your own flesh. Um, now, his parents remembered what we saw last week in chapter 13, the angel of the Lord that came to them and told them, look, you are going to have a boy, you're going to have this child, and he is going to begin to deliver the Israelites from the hand of the Philistines. So they know that's, that's his mission in life, and they have a problem with this because this doesn't seem like it would match him delivering Israel from the Philistines. He was supposed to fight the Philistines, not marry into them. So listen to how he responds there. But his father and mother said to them, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And here's Samson's reply. He said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. So that sounds pretty nasty and disrespectful to his father, even in our culture, right? Let alone in this culture where there were arranged marriages and the patriarch was the head of the home. And for him to talk this way was unthinkable, but he is solely focused on himself at this point. And just as we saw throughout this book, the Israelites are doing what is evil in the eyes of the Lord and what is right in their own eyes. I think it's very poetic here that Samson says, she is right in my eyes. So they do. Um, they get this wife who is a Philistine. And this is our first, this is really our first heading, right? Samson is impulsive and he's unteachable. We've been talking a lot about when you follow your way and you completely ignore God's plan for your life, where that leads and where that goes. When you are impulsive and you're just satisfying your cravings and you're unteachable, you're not listening to anyone else, you are going to be destructive. So that's where he's at. And this next verse, verse 4, actually really explains everything that is to follow. Because his parents don't know what to do. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure they're very grieved at this point in time. But this next verse is very crucial. Verse 4, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So in the middle of this story, where Samson is clearly going down a wrong path, we have this big, very obvious verse that shows us the narrative of what is to follow. God is at work. And that's the next heading. Yes, Samson was impulsive. He was unteachable. But God works through evil. God knows that Israel was in bed with the Philistines. And he's going to use this self-centered, rash, impulsive Samson to shake things up. So what does God do when his people are not just accommodating but also becoming one with the world, God is going to show us how Samson's sexual appetite, his temper, his vindictiveness are going to drive a wedge between Israel and the, the nation of Phil the Philistines. So as this story goes on, it's going to get darker and darker. Everyone is acting out of their own ungodly character. They're all wrong. They're all desperately wicked. But what we're going to see is God using it all 
to get his will done, to ensure that these two nations are alienated. God remains unconditionally committed to his covenant promises. And he is so faithful to his promises that he not only fulfills them in spite of their sin, but even through their sin. He uses their own sinfulness to bring about this deliverance. Do you remember any examples of this happening in the New Testament? The supreme example of this is found in Acts 2, verse 23. I have the verse up here for you. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In this verse, we see the sovereignty of God and we also see the will of man with their free choice. Like mankind in their own sin crucified Jesus Christ. And God used that. He is over it all. He is in complete control. So as strange as this may seem, God in his mercy is using the people's weakness to make sure there is no peace between them and the surrounding worldly culture. So let's keep reading verse 5. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. If you remember the Nazarite vow, he shouldn't be going anywhere near vineyards because he's not supposed to be drinking of anything from the vine. But he is anyway. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. And I honestly don't know what that means. Um, I think that's a cultural thing there. <laughs> Apparently in the day, it was like, let's go shoot the breeze and tear up a young goat. I don't know. That's what it sounds like to me. He tore that lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave them and gave some to them, and they ate. But, they did not, but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. So here he is breaking the next element of his Nazarite vow. He's touching a dead body. Verse 10, his father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there for the young men used to do. And as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. So what we have now is Samson um, throwing a drinking party. I mean, this, this is really what this is for, for, the, uh, for, the arranged, for the marriage here coming up. Verse 12, and Samson said to them, he's probably drunk, but here he is, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast, quite the party, and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. He said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Nice guys, right? Wow. 
Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I have not told you my father nor my mother and I shall tell you. She wept before him the seven days of the feast. The seven days of the feast lasted. What a great party. What a great marriage already. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. And then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? How's this going to go with Samson? He said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Two quick things on this. Don't mess with another man's wife. And also, please don't call your newlywed wife a heifer. <laughs> okay. Let's, let's, learn, let's learn a lot here from all of this. Verse 19, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Okay. And he went down to the Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Now we're getting very few details in this story, but you, you can already tell like what on earth is going on? Who is this guy? What kind of a life is he living? This sounds dreadful. I don't even want to see this on the Hollywood movie, okay? Like, this is, this is corrupt stuff. This is really bad. How can God use a guy like this? And why did the Spirit of the Lord rush upon him? He's in a toxic relationship. All of this stuff just sounds awful. So if you have that question right now, how is God using a man like this to get his work done? Shouldn't God be using someone good? Shouldn't God be using someone who's doing the right thing, making the right choices, who's not breaking all of his vows? Is, and, and, and if you think that right now, I think that's a very common thought. A lot of people have that thought. It's a very religious thought. God is going to use me. God is going to do great things through me if I behave well and I do good, right? We... We're humans. We think that way. And what you're missing with that is God is not like us. God is holy, okay? And he is always using people, and every single person has fallen. Praise God, by God's grace, none of us in this room, I don't think, are to the, to the same degree and to the same extreme case of Samson, but we all have our own issues, and God, by his grace, uses every single one of us. And if we think that God can only use me if I'm a good person and I'm obeying all the rules and I'm saying all the right things and I'm going to all the right places, that's the only way that God will use me. What you're doing is putting God in a box. That would mean that he is limited by humans. And he is only allowed to work when we are good and when we make the right choices. It would also mean that God doesn't work by grace and that God doesn't take the initiative to save, but that he works in response to good works, waiting for people to help him to save. And the amazing truth is 
that God doesn't work like that at all. He is above all of that. And he works through sinners, and he works for sinners like us. God doesn't just promise to bless us when things are going right and when we are doing well. God keeps his promises even in the dark and disastrous periods of your life. Even if something is going horribly wrong right now and you don't understand why this is happening. Maybe there's somebody in your life that has made some really bad choices and it's affecting you. You have to realize that God is still at work in that situation. He can still bring good out of that situation. Not even our own sin will stop him from saving us or using us. And mysteriously, often unseen, usually far beyond our comprehension, God works through the free and very often flawed choices that people make. Romans 8.28 says this, In all things, God works together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Actually, I shared this verse, Romans 8, 28, with, um, with my son Beckham just on Friday night. We had a really, really uh, tough day in a lot of ways, tough week, but um, a lot of things going on with Beckham. He's my, my oldest son. He's, he's still struggling with like the, the facial scar that he had from the accident and um, just dealing with a lot of different things. But then, you know, when it rains, it pours. Um, I found out from my dad on Friday that he is diagnosed, there's a mass in his kidney and it's cancerous. Um, and, and we know it's very, very serious. He hasn't really been able to talk to a doctor to find out if he has to get that, if they have to remove the entire kidney or what, if it's spread. We honestly don't, we don't know much. But Beckham is a lot like my dad. And, he, and he's, and it's, and I mean, it's his grandpa. He loves his grandpa. And, he's, and we're all taking it very hard. But as we talked on Friday night about this, um, we, were talking, we ended up talking about how God uses bad things and he turns them into good. And I, in, in, I mean, in the whole course of the conversation, you know, Beckham had a lot of questions. We were, we were talking through a lot of different things. And I was, I was making the point to him that one of the reasons why you love your grandpa so much, we have such a great relationship with your grandpa, is because your grandpa never had that with his own dad. He never had a good relationship with his own dad. I didn't have a relationship with my grandpa because he wasn't, he wasn't a good man. My dad had that childhood, and he knew he wanted to be different. It was one of the things that shaped him and changed him to be the kind of person he is now, who's a very loving father, a very loving grandfather. But a lot of that would have would have never taken place and shaped in him and built up in him if it wasn't for the extreme pain that he went through as a child with a dad who wasn't very loving. And, and I mean, we could, you could, I could give a thousand examples of this. I'm sure many of you in this room are thinking the same things. Examples in your life of painful, hard situations that God was in control of. Even though that person acted evil, and they did wrong. The curse of sin is very real. It affects us all. God will still work through the evil and he will bring about good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So that's chapter 14. Samson's impulsive, unteachable, but God is faithful and God works through evil. 
In chapter 15, the story continues, and it's more of the same. It just honestly keeps getting worse and worse. Uh, Samson is angry and disrespectful. That's our next heading. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. After some days, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. I don't know what it is about goats. I don't know if they're going to tear this goat apart or what. And it's weird that he's not with his wife, too. I don't understand. But anyway, let's keep reading. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I already thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. Yeah. Now, no one's going to, I mean, usually Samson, the womanizer, would be all for that, right? But no one's going to tell Samson what to do. So verse 3, and Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of the tails. And then he had set fire, when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go in the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stack of grain in the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. And then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timonite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. These are not good people. Verse 7, And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and, I will, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Edom. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? Now, now listen to the men of Judah here. These are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel. And notice how they talk to Samson. They don't even expect Samson. They're not looking for a deliverer at all. Is All they want is peace and harmony. They want to just stay content living with the Philistines. They don't want anything to, to, to rock the apple cart at all. Verse, um, verse ten, the verse, end of verse 10, we have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Verse 11, then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, we have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. And they said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him to the rock, up from the rock. Then he came to Lehi. The Philistines came shouting to meet him and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that, that, as, that has caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. And with it, he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of the donkey, I have struck down 1,000 men. And in the original language, that would have rhymed. <laughs> Verse 17, and as soon as he had finished speaking, so he's not only violent, he's also a poet, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand and at that place was called Remola 
Hethel. And he was very thirsty. I'm going to pause right here in, this, in the midst of this another hor- horrible story. This is the first time in our text that Samson is going to talk to God. All right? Look how he talks to the Lord, verse 18. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Yeah, I mean, that says enough, right? That's all you need to know. Verse 19, And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En-Hakor. It is at Lehi to this day, and he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. A lot going on in this story again. But the thing that I really want you to see is the truth about God. Samson is angry and disrespectful. How does God respond? God gives grace. Do you want me to just die out here? I'm thirsty. Like, what are you doing with your servant? It's the way he's talking to God. And God still split the rock and gave him water out of the rock. Similar to the rock of Moses, when Moses disobeyed God and God still gave forth the water of life out of the rock. And we know that that rock with Moses is a picture of Jesus Christ. Water from the rock is an amazing picture of the grace of God. It's not supposed to happen. What what, what is this? I mean, in these circumstances, the last thing this guy needs is a miracle from God. He's talking down to God the Father, yet God shows him grace. It's still in the days of the Philistines, and God is still at work. Now, it's very easy right here to shake your head at Samson. How could you do that? But how many times does it take something extreme for you to pray to God? How many times do you come to God with an expectant attitude? I know I have. And we have to insert ourselves into this dark story. We, too, are recipients of God's grace. We've all received the grace of God. So we must show that grace to others. Now, this is the place where I'd like to pause and answer another question. I still haven't answered this. The spirit of the Lord came upon him to do all this? To kill a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey? How is this possible? If Samson has God's spirit, shouldn't we see him growing in holiness? How can he be empowered by the spirit and yet show no patience, no humility, no self-control at all? And here's where I want to draw your attention to a distinction that is throughout scripture that many followers of Christ are just simply unaware of. I'm going to put it up on the screen. It is possible to have the gifts of the Spirit yet lack the fruit of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul's talking to the church about the gifts of the Spirit, he says there are gifts of skill, 
for doing. Everyone receives these. Every, every follower of Jesus has these. Abilities for serving people and loving one another and helping their brothers and sisters in Christ. And they can be also used for other ends too. I mean, these same, these same skills and abilities, you could put them to practice in the workplace, in, in corporate America, and be very, very successful. But in Galatians 5, 22 through 33, Paul tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is the character traits of being. Qualities such as peace, patience, gentleness, self-control. Then in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul tells us, right in the middle of that whole section, he tells us that it is possible to have the skills of doing. You can have these gifts, yet you can work them out with no love. And if you don't have love, those gifts are eternally worthless. You can accomplish things here on earth, absolutely. But for eternity, for the kingdom of God, there's no lasting value. 1 Corinthians 13 is written to the church. This is, this is a warning for all of us. It means that we should be aware of this in and of our own selves to use our gifts in our own strength for our own ends and for our own, our own purpose, but to not use it for God, for his glory, with the right heart, which, which plays out with the fruit of the Spirit. So this is a very important thing to think through. Because the gifts of the Spirit can operate in someone. They can be very, very successful, some even, sometimes even through church. I mean, you can have men who are pastors, who are leaders, spiritual leaders, doing great things, huge numbers, like people getting saved, right? And they're using their gifts, and no one really knows until it eventually comes out that they didn't have the fruit of the Spirit in their own heart. And they could have been using that gift with an impure motive. They could have been using it out of fear, uh, out of, out of uh, a desire for more power and control. So just because God is working through some, something or someone or an organization or you name it, God, remember, what are, we're talking about Samson here, right? God's working through Samson. God can work through anyone or anything. That doesn't mean that person is filled with the fruit of the Spirit, they have gifts. They may not be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. And right here, there is a big difference. That distinction is very clearly on display. Don't ever assume, though, that just because God is using someone or even using you, that means your heart is right with God. And you know what? We, we don't know. That's why we don't judge other people's hearts, right? We can't read their minds and see their motives. We, you eventually can see fruit, and God does talk about how you can actually judge fruit that you see. So if you start to see selfishness and dishonesty and bitterness, like if you start to see those fruits come out of a life, well, hey, okay, that's telling us about the heart, right? But we have to be very aware of our own hearts. And just because something's successful, just because something looks really good on the outside does not mean that it has good fruit on the inside. God will use everything and anyone. Your responsibility is to check your own heart. It, are my motives in the right place? Do I have a pure heart about this? That's what we all need to. It, it's not just, oh, well, this was, God blessed it, so it must be fine. 
That's not, that does not work. That's not accurate. Let's keep reading into chapter 16, though. That was chapter 15. Samson was angry and disrespectful, but our faithful God gives grace. Last chapter. And we're, we're going to keep barreling through this. Verse 1, Samson went to Gaza. This is the capital of, of uh, the Philistine country. And there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. And the Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. So he's not only being disobedient, he's being absolutely reckless and foolish at this point. He feels like he's invincible. He can do whatever he wants to do. Verse 3, but Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doorpost of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and he put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of a hill, and that is in front of Hebron. He gets out again. He just does whatever he desires to do. Verse 4. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 100, uh, 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson, please, just, just step back. Listen to this question that Delilah is giving you. Just tell me where your strength lies. So if somebody wants to subdue you and tie you up and capture you, how would we go about that? <laughs> Why are you asking, dear? <laughs> Come on. Again, he, we, we know who he is. I mean, he just, he just got out of the room with the prostitute. He picked up the city gate. He, he feels like he can get out of anything, right? At this point, this is a classic case of an addict who's a sex addict. He's also a living on the edge, right? Like this, he's, he's got to be just get living for the thrill of, ooh, are they about ready to capture me? Like, this is who this guy is. And he answers her question. I can't believe he's even answering this question. But verse 7, Samson said to her, If they buy me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and like any other man. Then the Lord of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Verse 9 just, just baffles me. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings and thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire, so the secret of his strength was not known. This is where it gets bizarre. Verse 10, they're still talking. <laughs> they're still talking. <laughs> then Delilah said to Samson, Are you kidding me? You're still, you're still with her? So she said, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Well, yeah, he lied to you. You have a horrible relationship. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they buy me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took the new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. You just can't make this stuff up. You really can't. <laughs> 
Verse 13, then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with this pin, then I shall become weak and like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pin and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep, pulled, the, pulled away the pin and the loom and the web. And she said to him, how can you say, I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. He could just walk away, right? <laughs> could we just walk away? Verse 17, and he instead, he told her all his heart and he said to her, a razor has never come upon my head. For I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines saying, come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Now, let's pause here. We, we see where this is headed. This is a... This is another example of love, in quotes, right? Like, what, what, what's, what is Samson's desire? What is his motive? What is Delilah's desire? Well, clearly, Delilah is pretty easy to see, right? I mean, she's going to get paid very handsomely. She will be rich. She will be famous. She will be a, a, a heroine for her nation to capture this, this national menace that is dominating their people. So yeah, she's getting, she's getting paid off. She has that desire to manipulate him. He just wants to live in the edge of danger and, and have the bedroom favors. That's, that's what he wants, right? Both people want something for themselves, which is often the world's version of love. That's not... God's version of love, because God's love for us is agape love. It's an action verb. It's a, a self-sacrificing love. I am going to give myself to help this other person, my spouse or my neighbor, or I, I'm going to choose to limit my own self to serve someone else. That's God's love, and it's a beautiful thing. It's a freeing thing, right? In our world, just like here, that we're, we're seeing it Front and center, it's what can you give to me? What do I gain from you? How do you advance me? How do you help me look better? How do you make me feel better? And the second you're not helping me, I don't love you anymore. Some of us have experienced that. We felt the, the, the ramifications from other people in that style of love, which is really just Selfish gratification. We can't let the world's version of love skew our version of love. When you love someone, it's not about what you receive. It's what you give to the person who you are loving. It's very important that we see that. But <clears throat> let's pick back up in the text and finish this. Uh, verse 20, and she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. 
And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as the other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. He didn't really even believe the Nazareth. I mean, he hadn't been keeping the Nazarite vow. Ever since we met him at the beginning of chapter 14, he hasn't kept the Nazarite vow. This is the last thread of it left, his long hair. And he still laid his head down on her lap and went to sleep, even after he told her that. So he really thought, I'm untouchable. I can get out of this. In verse 21, And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he grounded the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Why does the author put that in there, verse 22? Of course his hair began to grow again. The point here is the Philistines allowed it to grow back because the Philistines didn't believe in God. They didn't believe God at all. They, they believed in magic. Like, is it these cords? Is it, is it this? Like, is it that? Like, what's the secret recipe for this guy's magical strength? And they felt they broke the, broke the code. They didn't believe... They believed, okay, the, the vow is broken, so the power is gone. A lot of people look at God that way. If I don't do the right things, if I don't follow the right path, then okay, it's all over. It's not for me. What they're missing is Samson's power wasn't in the vow itself. It was in the God that he made the vow to. It's very important that we all see that. So Samson is captured. His eyes are gouged out. He's got a band over his eyes now at this point. And uh, this is really sad. This is really, really sad. Samson has blown it. Um, he's, he's used all these gifts of God. The people are still living with the Philistines. Now he's imprisoned by them. And... What I want to say here is, and there's another side point here, and that is, as hard as adversity is on us spiritually, oftentimes success is even harder. Samson was very, very successful because of all of his gifts. He had all the ability in the world, and he was used to just getting out of jail free. His success was what led to his downfall, not even his own hardships. And this is, shows us how sin and grace function on two completely opposed bases. In grace, God takes even our weaknesses and failures and he uses them for us. But in sin, we take even the, his gifts and his strengths and we use those against him. Our sinful hearts will even find ways to use God's blessing to bring to our own ruin. And Paul talks about this in Romans 1 when he points out that the worst thing you can do is give in to your fleshly desires and ignore God and just cave into your cravings. So Samson is successful because he's abused the gifts of God. He hasn't manifested any of the fruits of the Spirit and he thinks he can get whatever he desires and always get away with it. Do you ever have a similar thought, though? I'm smart. I'm savvy. I can work this out. I can, I can wiggle out of this one. 
I'm going to get in my way because I want this. I don't really care what God says. I'll, 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 I'll finagle it. Again, I've been there. That same tendency is in all of our hearts. But when you are prideful, eventually you get delusional. And that's exactly what we saw in the entire story of Samson and Delilah. Samson is prideful and delusional. He's prideful and delusional. But in the midst of all of that, again, we have a broken person and we have a faithful God. Because God always keeps his promises. Look at verse 23. Now the Lord, lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. I mean, you better believe they're rejoicing because they've captured Samson, the menace who was holding them back. Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand and the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man, who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Now, this is where some people say, look, he's just trying to get revenge for his eyes being gouged out. But you have to notice, this is a much different Samson. This is the first time we see any humility in Samson. This is the first time we see any shred of faith. He believes that God will do this, that God can do this. And he humbly requests from God through faith to give him his strength one more time so he can sacrifice himself. Something we've never seen from Samson before. Verse 29, and Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rests, and he leaned his weight against them and his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all of his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him at Zorah and Eshtalal in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. So do we see in this story that pride goes before a fall? Yeah, absolutely. Pride leads to dis, uh, delusionment. Delusion, yeah, we see that. Selfish relationships lead to destruction. We see all of that. But what is amazing here is God is faithful. And all the way up to the very end, 
God used Samson to bring about what he knew he needed to happen. God came to Samson and he, he, he raised this judge up to begin to deliver his people out of the hand of the Philistines. And God kept that promise. God used this man all the way up to the very end. The most faithful point of his life is the manner of his death, right, for Samson? And the most triumphant moment of his life was actually his death. Does that remind you of anyone else? Worship team, you can come up right here. Samson's death in two crucial ways was very different from the death of Jesus Christ, our ultimate deliverer, our ultimate savior. So the first big difference is Samson is in the temple of Dagon as a result of his inability to live under God's rule and authority in his life. His downfall was brought about by his own disobedience. Jesus Christ always lived for God's glory. Jesus, the God-man, never sinned once. He was always faithful to his father and obedient to his father. He was sinlessly perfect, and he died for our disobedience. The second difference is Samson's death achieved limited, the limited role that God had for him to begin to deliver Israel. So, yeah, they brought down the temple of Dagon, and all those wicked rulers were, were, were killed in the process. That was a very small thing in the big picture of life, in the grand scheme of things. Jesus, his death, delivered deliverance from sin once for all. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So they're very different. But in a lot of ways, Samson is a shadow of our ultimate deliverer to come. They were both born miraculously after an angelic announcement. They both had incredible strength. Samson's was physical. Jesus's was of the spirit. They were both betrayed by a friend. They both were handed over to Gentile oppressors. They were both mocked. They both died with arms outstretched. Both appeared completely struck down by their enemies. Yet in their death, they crushed their enemies. Except, Samson did this on a very limited human scale. Jesus did this for the entire world. Jesus defeated Satan. Jesus defeated death itself. Samson was a broken man that God used. God took the evil, he turned it into good. God gave grace upon grace upon grace, and God kept his promises. Despite Samson doing everything in his power to ruin and destroy God's plan, God in his sovereignty accomplished exactly what he willed. He's, doing, he's still doing that to this day in your life. That's our God. And I love the story of Samson because it shows us exactly how God can use anybody. 
You don't have to have it all together for God to use you. You don't. God is going to find a way to keep his promises and accomplish his will, and he will use anyone. Even beyond that, it goes one step further. Your brokenness is redeemable through God's faithfulness. Jesus is the ultimate deliverer. He's our ultimate savior. He loves us sacrificially. He gives grace. And there's nothing that can stop him from fulfilling his promise. And there's actually one other massive difference between Samson and Jesus. You know what it is? Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus rose again from the dead. Jesus is alive to this day. That's our Savior. Would you stand up with me? The riddle of Samson was that what is sweeter than honey, what is stronger than a lion? You know who else is sweeter than honey, stronger than a lion? Jesus Christ. Jesus is everything, and he wants to save you. He wants to use you, and he will use you for his glory. All you have to do is come to him, and he will do the rest. Thanks for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions about the topic of this sermon, or if you would like someone to follow up with you about applying this to your life, please reach out to us at info at doxaupstate.church. You are loved.